Consider the wise words of two Americans regarding free speech. First, Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas. Restriction of free thought and free speech is the most dangerous of all subversions. It is the one un-American act that could most easily defeat us. Second, wisdom of another sort from author Jim C. Hines. Freedom of speech does not protect you from the consequences of saying stupid shit. You're listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, episode 106, Bong Hits for Jesus. All right, Race, getting to know you question today. Is there anything that you do that people would consider to be weird, but you defend it and you would actually recommend that everybody else also do that thing? Tyler, I believe that almost every man listening to this podcast, with maybe a few exceptions, should be wearing women's socks. Wow, that is not <laughs> what I expected to hear. <laughs> oh, this is so good. This is my weird hot take. Please so, explain. As I have experienced it, and I mean, there, I'm sure, actually, I know of some, like, newer, we're the cool sock, you know, people who make a good man sock. But for the most part, most of my life, you buy a pair of, a pack of men's socks or a pair of men's socks. And for whatever reason, it's like, we're just going to make socks for all mankind. <laughs> like, this Yeah, they're not sized. Gonna... No, right? they're yeah. not. And so because there are men that wear size 14 shoes, like my dad wears like a 12 or something. He has huge feet. And I wear like a 10. Um, most of the time, men's socks are like, I just hate. I, lo I love a good sock and I hate a baggy sock that's just like not doing what I need it to do. And um, I don't know if this means that I've got lady feet. I don't know if I've just <laughs> hacked into something. <laughs> but I think unless you have like extra large feet, you will be surprised at the comfort and uh, the, the nice snug fit of a woman's sock. Wow. To the extent that uh, my wife and I buy like we found socks that we both like and they have like a logo on them and i take the logo with the blue the the socks with the blue logo and the gray logo and she takes the pink logo <laughs> and <laughs> we just so share great. socks because uh they fit better and that is a little piece of life advice for me go out and get yourself some women's socks this is incredible. I did not think in writing this question down that we would be hearing this as an answer. Um, but I'm inspired. I feel like I need to try them now. What's well, the difference? What makes it uh, better than a men's sock? It's just, it doesn't hang. Like when I put on a normal men's sock, it usually is like floppy around my toes. It's too long. Okay. The toe box is too big. And I don't have like small feet, I don't think. I, they're slightly smaller than average, maybe. I my brother's about my height and his feet are bigger than mine. But okay. even so, like it feels like this sock is just huge and it doesn't fit tightly. It bunches up, it moves around. And I like low profile socks that you can barely see. Okay. And that don't interfere with anything. And so I like them to 
fit snugly, not be baggy or loose in any weird areas. And as long as it can go on my foot comfortably, I kind of don't think there's any, like, there's no such thing as a sock that's too tight. I mean, within reason. Oh, right? okay. So you don't like it to be baggy or loose. No. And, and like I said, as long as it can go on, I, I, you know, tight is my, is for me as my friend. And so I think you gotta, you gotta go women's socks to the extent that uh, my family does this fun game where we buy our, instead of doing a sibling gift, gift exchange, we've switched to now um, we buy ourselves a present. Okay. All have them, these presents. And it's usually like $20. Everybody buy themselves a present um, with a $20 limit, ship it to a central location where we're all going to be for holidays. Okay. And then the presents are then put on display and part and then the game is you have to guess who bought what for themselves. Oh, and that's the winner, fun. Oh, it's so much fun. And then the winner gets like a prize. My parents put like 50 bucks up or whatever and it's like whoever wow. can gets the most guesses correct wins. And one year I ordered a pack of women's socks. <laughs> as my wow. gift and every nobody got it and right? nobody guessed it yeah like, this has to be one of the girls and it was me <laughs> <laughs> oh that's so good wow i love it yeah what about you so i wrote this question because this is something that i did tonight and i have been <laughs> called out on this before and you know the the nature of the question is you have to defend it like i know that it is weird that I like a Dr. Pepper with water in it. I'm not going to try and defend that to people. Like, I'm not going to say everybody should be doing that. You sure, know? sure. But I am going to say that everybody should throw away their toasters and cook toast on the stove. Oh, okay. I think a toaster is one of the worst inventions. <laughs> it does not cook bread evenly. None of the dial settings are consistent from toaster to toaster, even consistent in, within their own usage. Mm. And it gets crumbs everywhere. It's impossible to clean. You have to take up counter space to use it. I think it's much easier to toast bread on a frying pan on the stove. And people have looked at me like I'm a clown when they see me. <laughs> <laughs> But I will say, I mean, I guess it is kind of weird, but I'm like, it's so much easier. You can control it. It doesn't really require a lot of cleanup. You don't have to oil the pan. Actually, you shouldn't oil the pan. I don't want like oily toast. You, you just know? put naked bread down on naked a- Naked bread on a hot um, frying pan. It takes like a couple minutes. You flip it. And then the cleanup, you just wash it. You rinse it off. It's not even like a lot of cleanup. And then you put your frying pan away. So- I can I will say I don't think I've ever done that, but I have no counter arguments. You're totally right. Like <laughs> we've got a cupboard in our counter that just is full of crumbs because that's where we stick our toaster. It's nasty. They're impossible to clean. I don't know that. I don't think it's even safe to run them underwater. I guess maybe it is. I don't know. But well, and so um, Alton Brown, the like chef, um, yeah, has some great recipes that I. I, I watched an interview with him and he said one of my um, one of his least favorite things is kitchen items that only that have one, one purpose. Yes. Mm, yeah. And when I heard him say that, it was like a beam of light. I was like, of course, yeah. like, kitchens get cluttered 
And so when I'm buying things for my kitchen, I should don't buy things that just do one thing. Yes. And the toaster is kind of guilty of that because (laughs) everybody has a frying pan. Even a tiny one can hold one piece of bread. Yeah. And so you can eliminate that whole, like we've got a whole big section of our shelf that's taken up by this, you know, one foot by one foot cube and a frying pan would do it. I, I mean, I'm preaching this gospel. I hope that, I hope that it changes your life for the better. Uh, but I, when I realized that I could do that, I was like, hey, you don't need a toaster. Like, cause I, I just didn't have one for the longest time, but bread, I, I also think that bread is almost always best consumed toasted mm-hmm. unless it's like a nice baguette or something. If it's like uh, wonder bread, it's not really good raw. I think it's best to toast it. Well, I'm going to have to have some toast from the frying pan for breakfast <laughs> and report back. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, I love that quote from Alton Brown, though. And I think that's kind of the reason that I've always avoided. There are a lot of things that I don't have in my kitchen. Uh, Coincidentally, my kitchen is pretty small, but I don't have a rice cooker. I think Mm -hmm. for that same reason, I've always just been like, I'll just make it in the pot. Like, what is a rice? I mean, I know a rice cooker is nice and it like is convenient, but it just does the one thing and I don't make rice that often. Yeah. You have to weigh the convenience and whatever with the right. space and the, the, yeah, the, I get it. I'm going to think of what other things do I not have for that reason? You know, I think the, one of the only things that I still have in my kitchen that breaks that rule, but that I really do like, and I'm, it's one of the only things that I'm willing to accept the like mm. the clutter for Yeah, is a, is a salad spinner. Oh, that's something I've never purchased before. Because I don't even know how. I don't even know what those do. <laughs> they spin, <they> spin salad. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, this looks like a fun little game that you well, would my get daughter does a kid for it. Christmas. Yeah, when I get it out, she's like, "Ooh, I want to spin it! I want to spin it!" Okay. Um, its only purpose is so you know, like you buy some lettuce or whatever, and you're making and then you wash salad. it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then you know, a drying rack or just laying it on a kitchen towel is perfectly fine, mm-hmm. but that might take a minute. And sometimes you can't get all the water off. So your lettuce is like, like all covered in water. And then that ruins the salad. That yeah. It, it, it can, yeah. it can detract. And so yeah. you put us, put it in this little bowl thing that's got a handle on top and you spin it and all of the water centrifugally is like expelled into wow. another chamber. Okay. And so I can't justify that for anything other than drying salad off slightly faster yeah. <laughs> than, than just like wiping it down with a paper towel or whatever. But um, I do, I do break the rule for that reason. But, but if I eliminate my toaster as per your uh, recommendation, you'll have the room. Then I've got yeah. the room. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, today's episode, as you've seen from the title, I hope um, <laughs> everybody who saw it was a little, maybe a little intrigued, maybe a little scandalized. I don't know what exactly you felt, um, but it certainly is a catchy use of language, and that's exactly what we're talking about today. Today's another um, another episode that we're doing where we're going to talk about a, a Supreme Court case. So this is a legal case coming from my side of the of the table. And it's about free speech. 
and how we can use uh, our language, like I said, to maybe intrigue or to uh, scandalize others. Mm-hmm. And um, what are the limits of that? What what it, what does free speech actually? What does that mean? When um, can when can the government tell you to stop talking? And uh, Tyler and I talking offline are both really excited about this one. This is a great uh, great little rabbit hole we're gonna dive into. <laughs> I'm really excited. And I have to say, honestly, reading about this case, I don't know about you, but I started to get a little angry. And that doesn't happen very often when we research for this podcast. I'm like, wow, there's there's some emotion in this one. Well, and I'm going to put we're going to discuss this one case in particular, but we're going to discuss several others. And Yeah. um, yeah, I think everybody at some point will probably be angry if you're if you're paying attention you'll probably get angry because this is all about people saying you can't say that and mm-hmm. um as we'll discuss that's a very the 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 american reaction is to say sure mm-hmm. i can right like right like, it's a, just a knee jerk thing even if you didn't really want to say it or you didn't you don't even agree with it right it's like no you don't get to tell me what i can and can't say and mm-hmm. as a matter of fact in um in my constitutional law classes that I took in law school, which I took basically every constitutional law class I could. They were the most fun, the most interesting to me. I just loved talking about this kind of stuff. And um, I'll probably reference her more than once, but Tony Massaro, my excellent con law professor who literally wrote the book on on these topics we're going to discuss. She always said, freedom of speech is like, I could show you on paper the statistics to prove that it is the most beloved and most protected American right. Wow. Okay. We're really not messing around about it. Like mm-hmm. ev- most cases that come up saying, can we do this? Get shut down and they say, nope, freedom of speech mm-hmm. is too special. Uh, you know, freedom of religion and assembly and right to bear arms and, um, you know, the freedom from cruel and unusual punishment, all of those we're willing to make more concessions on. But the freedom of speech is um, the word she would use was sacrosanct. So almost holy um, value that Americans hold. So we're excited to get into this. And we kind of have to dive in by asking, so what is free speech? That's a, you know, you hear it all the time, but what exactly does that, those those two words mean? And um, we should start with the text. And in this case, when we're talking about this special constitutional right, let's go to the Constitution. So the First Amendment to the Constitution, the Constitution was written and ratified, and then we have amendments to the Constitution or changes. And the first one that was added, um, First Amendment reads, in part, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So some of those later ones are related tangentially, right? Um, You know, you can assemble to speak together, maybe. But the main part there is Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. Um, Now, a a tangent that we won't really get into, but that I love pointing out is everyone's like, great, Congress can't do that. Uh, But, Tyler, could uh, Texas pass a law that says nobody can... um, you know, nobody's allowed to speak ill of the Dallas Cowboys because Ooh. this only says Congress shall make no law abridging. Yeah, that seems spicy. And also, <laughs> what about the president? Right. Yeah. What about an executive, executive order? Executive branch. Yeah. yeah. 
And there is an answer to that. Maybe I'll throw it in a footnote. But I, oh, okay. I, I had that moment in law school and the, in class, they actually said, well, what about this only says Congress. And we were like, oh, oh, no. What? what oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's the bedrock of where free speech come from. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. That's pretty plain language. <clears throat> um, as with everything that might appear plain in the beginning or on its face, um, it can start to get muddy really quick. So for instance, okay, the freedom of speech, does that mean, are we going to take that literally? Meaning that I can say what I want, but I, for instance, it says the freedom of speech, not the freedom of, um, of writing things down. It doesn't say here, I guess it does say of the press or no. So there you go. Speech or the press. What about a handwritten letter? That wasn't produced on a press. So you could get, you know, you can see how you have to start saying, okay, well, yeah, all right, fine. Let's draw some lines around this, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so some of the things that fall into the category of speech, obviously me saying to other people my opinions, that's going to be speech. But then the um, the court over the years has said, okay, but also there's something called symbolic speech. And I think this makes good sense, right? Like there was a case, um, the case is called Stromberg, where, um, uh, the state of California passed a law that says you cannot fly a red flag like a communist because it, it, it's, it could be a communist symbol. So no red flags are to be flown. And the Supreme Court said, California, you can't make that rule because although um, this woman Stromberg isn't actually speaking, hanging a flag is clearly a form of speech. Yes. Okay. So that's symbolic speech. Um, and this through various cases has also been extended to um, art, sculpture, images, um, oh, wow. things written on your, sh- like on your clothing. If you have, you know, a phrase or an image on your shirt, your coat, um, the, the ability to stay silent is also an exercise of your freedom of speech, mm-hmm. your freedom to not speak. So these are all speech. And I think we can see how you can get there. Um, but there are limits. Tyler, can you think of any example off the top of your head of like where Congress, where the government has made a rule that says, well, you can't speak like that or you can't say this or you can't do it in that way? Can you think of an example of a limit on the freedom of speech? Yeah, I don't know about like a particular case, but I can imagine that it would be limited if someone speaking or expressing themselves was like actively harming somebody else. Sure. Like if I'm, I don't, I can't think of like an example of this, but like <laughs> maybe hate speech. Does that work? Yeah, no, I, you're, you're definitely on the right track. The, okay. the, the classic example, um, two of the, the, what you just said brings two things to mind. The first is this is like a, um, a, you know, a chestnut in the, in the law world um talking about free speech um you can't shout fire in a crowded theater Mm, okay this is like an example that people get um you couldn't go somewhere and just like cause a riot because that would cause a a panic it could cause could cause problems um you the other another example that um a judge wrote in some opinion is we wouldn't allow protesters to stand just outside the courtroom doors and yell so loudly that the court couldn't ever hold another trial yeah okay yeah so it's like okay right and we have to balance we have to do some balancing and um it kind of reminds me of the talk we were just having about kitchen items right like 
um, you have to balance the utility of the item versus the clutter that it takes up. So yeah. <laughs> the toaster only does one job. Is it worth the shelf space as opposed yeah. to something like a frying pan where there's almost infinite things you can do in it? You're going to need that for so many things. So we're obviously it's going to it's worth the shelf space. Same here, right? Like, OK, we, we can put we can put a little circle around this speech and say you can't say that. But for that limitation, what we're gaining is some sort of safety or some sort of, you know, um, some sort of good for, for humanity. Uh, you mentioned um, people being harmed or hate speech. There's also exceptions um, that we'll get into later for, yeah, something that's going to cause imminent harm or is like um, part of illegal, like in furtherance of illegal actions. Oh, but, yeah. So you couldn't walk up to, you know, you got a buddy and you say, that guy over there in the red shirt, I want you to, you know, this is a mafia hit. I want you to whack that guy and then say, well, hey, I was just expressing my free speech. All I all I did was use my, you know, my words and so yeah. somebody ended up dead. But, you know, I can say what I want. That's like, uh, yeah, freedom of speech isn't going to help you there, buddy. Um, so we can see we must draw lines. We make judgment calls about what is speech, what speech is OK, uh, when it goes too far and then it might harm others or endanger the public. And it, it really is a balancing test. Is it worth, you know, um, saying you can't say that, which is, you know, kind of an un-American idea on, you know, from its from the get go. But is it worth it for to protect some something? Um, interestingly, there was there's only been one Supreme Court justice who was like an an uh, an absolutist, like a purist of free speech. And he said this is Hugo Black. Um um, like in our parents' lifetimes, he was a uh, um, uh, uh, Supreme Court justice. And he said, <laughs> it says, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. And that's exactly what it means. There can be no laws <laughs> like <laughs> that limit speech at all. And he actually did agree to some other kinds of limits. But he's one of the, no, he's the only Supreme Court justice who has written and been like, I don't think that anything justifies like a law that limits what a person can say wow um, and like i said even he kind of backpedaled and it, it might even be from him where he was like we wouldn't let somebody yell so loud we couldn't have court yeah um but anyways so it's a it's a valued uh, a highly treasured um right so what would a violation of free speech be well, I've got some examples of things. So we know that we don't like doing it. We don't like saying you can't say that. So let's see an example when somebody tried and the Supreme Court or somebody else said what you just did was violated the First Amendment. Uh, the first case and for a lot of our examples today, I'm kind of leaning into like students and um, education um, examples, which raises its own kind of set of, of problems because it's a little different speaking in a classroom or as a student than if I'm just, you know, in Central Park saying, you know, the government's putting microchips in our brains. You can do that in Central Park in a way that maybe you can't do it in a classroom. But I have several classroom examples because it's kind of a fun theme. So the first case that I'll bring to your uh, attention is called Tinker Ver uh, versus Des Moines. This is a case out of Iowa where five students plan. Um, this is in the 1970s. Uh, to wear black armbands to school, sorry, 1960s, um, to protest American involvement in the Vietnam War. Uh, 
it was four students that were siblings and one other non-sibling student all said, this is what we're going to do. They attended various schools in the school district and the principals of the various schools found out about the plan. And beforehand, they created a policy that said school children wearing an armband would be asked to remove it immediately. And if you violate that, we're going to suspend you and you can't return to campus until you agree to comply with our no armband rules. Um, the participants, the, the Tinker children and their friend um, knew of the rule and said, we're going to do it anyways. They wore their black armbands to school to um, demonstrate their um, opposition to America's involvement in Vietnam. No violence or disruption took place because of the armbands and they were suspended according to um, according to the policy. This went to the Supreme Court and it was 7-2 in favor of the children. So wow. that's a pretty big win, right? Um, only two justices couldn't sign on to the, the full majority opinion. And the full majority opinion was written by Abe Fortas, our friend from wow. episode 27, <laughs> a Supreme Court justice with an interesting life um, and career. If you haven't listened to that one, go go give it a listen. Um, but he wrote the majority of opinion, which seven um, justices signed on to. And they found that the First Amendment, first of all, it applies to students in a public school. Um, he said it can hardly be argued that either students or teachers shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. So just because it's in school doesn't mean that, you know, you lose every one of your rights because, the, you know, the rules are different in school. You're you're um, there are certain the government is going to if you're in a public school is going to put some limitations on you that they probably wouldn't if you weren't attending their school. But freedom of speech, you know, follows you into the into the classroom. Um, and the and they the court also found administrators would have to demonstrate constitutionally valid reasons for such a specific regulation of wow. speech in the classroom. Mm. And this leads to something that to this day is called the Tinker Test, which um, is summarized as follows. Did the speech or the expression of the student materially and substantially interfere with the requirements of appropriate discipline in the operation of the school? In other words, yes, students are speaking. Maybe they're saying things people don't want to hear or the teachers don't want to have to deal with. But how disruptive is it? Was it material and substantially interfering with the ability of the school to function and, and hold discipline? And if it's not, if it's not a substantial disruption or not a material disruption, then you probably can't do anything about it just because you don't like it or just because these um this school district was thinking, we really don't want to have to deal with the drama that might come from this. We don't want, you know, whether it be bad press or other students getting upset or, you know, they don't we don't want our school to be thought of as an anti-war school or whatever it is. Um, you're going to have to have pretty good reasons for um, for suppressing speech. And so the um, the Des Moines school system was told that thing you cannot do. So go back and, and change that rule. So that's an example of a violation. Well, what isn't a violation then? When can the, um, the government say, you can't say that or you can't express that thought um, and, it, and it's totally fine? It doesn't violate the First Amendment. Um, well, the first and biggest category is 
what we just said. Congress shall make no laws. So something that isn't a violation of the First Amendment is non-governmental regulation of speech. The Constitution guarantees you that Congress will not take away your ability to freely express mm-hmm. yourself. But it doesn't say anything about a private corporation, about your family, about, you know, your church, about your, you know, whatever. Um, Most and this I'm going to get on my brief little very appropriately soapbox. um, And I'm going to say that most people complaining about free speech today, having their free speech violated are wrong. And I'm going to use my free speech to say you are wrong about that. (laughs) Um, Free speech rights, as guaranteed in the Constitution, don't say that it doesn't say that nobody can limit your speech. And it doesn't mean that if you share your opinion that you're not going to be penalized as a result. If you go up on a stage and say, I hate all women and I think women are stupid, women are probably going to be mad at you. And you can't say, this is America. (laughs) Why is this happening to me? Um, And as a matter of fact, I would say that those women, you know, yelling back at you or saying, I'm not going to come shop at your store anymore. They're doing that because they too have freedom of speech. So it's just a fun little freedom of speech circle there. Um, Yeah. You're free from, you're free to speak, but you're not free from consequences. Consequences. And one of my pet peeves is people love to say um, rights. We have rights. And if you've read anything that any of the founding fathers said, they never mentioned rights. It's always rights with responsibilities. So you have response. There are responsibilities and there are consequences. And so, yeah, we have, you know, these rights, but it comes with a burden. It comes with whatever. And so you're absolutely right. You have the freedom to express yourself. You're not free from the consequences that might follow. And um, if Facebook says you can't post X thing or you know, you Instagram says you can't post a photo with nipples in it. Um, you are not being oppressed, <laughs> at least not in a First Amendment con, con, um, context. A company that you've agreed to, you know, do business with on some level has said you can't do that. And that's different from the government telling you. Yeah. Because you don't have to be on Instagram. right? Yeah. Um, not everything that happens to you is oppression, oppression. And unless it's the government or a government agent, um, tough luck. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the first category. It's not a violation if it's not the government. Second is there are enumerated exceptions, and we already kind of got into these, right? So something like speech integral to illegal conduct or imminent lawless action. Um, Those are two examples that kind of already came up. So if you said, let's go right now and we're going to burn the governor's mansion to the ground, you couldn't then say, look, I was just speak speak and free baby that mm. is you are imminently you know inciting violence or crime or whatever same with like i said you can't say well yeah i told him to go kill him but that's my right to free speech um yeah. some of the other ones that are speech that is given lesser protection or no protection include obscenity so there are still obscenity laws um whatever city are um various cities our listeners are listening to you could go to your city website or your even your state website or whatever and there are going to be obscenity laws and they might vary it might you know depend on where you're at what's going to be obscene but you couldn't for instance stand outside a school and and hold up you know whatever sign you want for the school children to see at a certain point the city could say look we have rules about this and you just broke it Mm -hmm. and that makes some sense on some level 
Um, same with fraud. You can't stand up and say, you know, um, I, I guarantee you that you're going to double your investment on this thing and, and give me your money and it's all, you know, you're, I'm going to make you rich. And then later say, look, that was just free speech. I wasn't telling the truth, <laughs> but you know, you can't arrest me for that first amendment. That's not yeah. quite how that works. So if you, if you get a benefit from, from the lie, then mm-hmm. that's probably fraud. A fascinating case that um, quick sidebar, the Supreme court has found that lying about military service, what's often called stolen valor. So if I buy a uniform and gather a uniform together and can act like I was a Navy SEAL and can walk around and say, oh, yes, I won the Medal of Honor and I'm a very, very important um, Navy SEAL. Uh, that was exactly what this case was. And they said that person can't do that. That's fraud. Uh, hmm. And the Supreme Court said, actually, they can do that um, unless they're getting money from it or some sort of benefit. Um, just lying and being kind of a bad person, we're not going to stop you. That's not that's not what the First Amendment is. Mm, okay, <laughs> that one's interesting. Yeah, um, and then other examples um, that make good sense. Child pornography has been found to be something that can be limited by the government because while you might argue that there's you know an, a, an element of expression or whatever, um, even above the sacrosanct right of freedom to express and create what you think you can create is the well-being of minor children and protection from abuse and such things. So that one obviously also makes great sense. Um, And then there are things like, um, they're also often called time, place, and manner regulations. So the government could say, well, the shouting in the courtroom isn't a good example. Um, I could say, you guys can't come to the courthouse doors and shout so loud that we can't have a trial. Um, I'm not telling you you can't shout, and I'm not telling you that you can't shout at me. I'm not saying you can't criticize the court. I'm not saying you can't X, Y, and Z, but, um, you know, it is, it is reasonable that I can say there might be a time, there might be a place and there might be a manner in which your speech, um, you know, we can make you follow certain rules about where, when, and how you speak. And so that makes some good sense when you think about that. Like for instance, you might have to stay far enough back from the courthouse steps that we can all hear each other and conduct our business. But that's a slippery slope because then um, I encourage everybody to go to the Wikipedia page about um, so-called free speech zones. So an organization or an event or a university could say, look, you can say whatever you want, but you have to do it in a free speech zone, (laughs) which is, you know, if you can imagine on, you know, at Central Park, it's like, well, you can't do it down here by the fountains or by the duck ponds. Um, how about you do it over here by the dumpsters? This is the free speech zone. Where, and it's like, well, nobody can hear me over here and I don't want to be by the dumpsters. <laughs> um, so reasonable restrictions on the time you can speak, the place you can speak and the manner you can speak. Again, time also makes sense. You probably can't hold, have a speech, give a public you know, rally um in a city park at two in the morning because nobody can do that right everybody we have we have time rules about that kind of thing so that is my hopefully um not too drawn out kind of primer on what is free speech how does it work and kind of get our gears turning because now we get to turn to a specific example of a person who spoke and the ramifications of it and we get to decide Did the right thing happen?
So we come now to this event of challenged free speech. And on January 24th, 2002, students at a high school in Juneau, the capital of Alaska, gathered together to watch a once-in-a-lifetime event. Now, January 2002 in the United States was a unique time to be alive, if you remember. Um, September 11th had happened four months ago, five months yep. ago. Yep. Um, and we should, maybe we should do a 9-11 episode sometime. If for no other reason, then I would love to hear your story of where you were when it happened. And oh, yeah. what the fallout was for you. Um, so uh, an interesting time to be in the United States. The political climate was very charged. The, uh, just the general climate, I think, was uh, very charged and threatened. And at the same time, it was the start of the 2002 Winter Olympics. And I remember these very well, actually, because that year they were held in Salt Lake City, Utah, which is where my mom's family comes from. And I don't know about you, Race, but I felt like as Mormons, we felt like the whole world was noticing us. For at, least, <laughs> at least that's how I felt. It was like, oh, they're paying attention to us for the first time. No, I, to I totally know what you mean. And this also was just kind of the first first Olympics, really, that I probably could have remembered. But I do remember yeah. it very well because it was like, oh, yeah, that's in Salt Lake City. That's the temple. They're talking about this yeah. stuff. And um, this was also, interestingly, the Winter Olympics. This kind of made like this is like a pivotal moment in the career of Mitt Romney. Oh, I didn't know that. He, yeah, he was like that. He the, these Olympics were in like shambles. They were poorly managed and things weren't coming along in time and they weren't meeting deadlines. And he was brought in as like a like a, a, a manager, like a let's figure this out kind of, um, you know, um, organizer. And he, hmm. he like made it a huge success and it made a ton of money instead of losing money as it was projected. And so it was like it like catapulted him into like prominence. And I think as part of his. uh his political career is due to successfully managing these Olympics in, in Utah. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. So this is January, 2002, a month earlier in December of 2001 in Athens, Greece, the Greek actress Talia Prokopiou played the role of the high priestess in the Olympics and she lit the Olympic flame. She would have used a parabolic mirror in order to do this, to focus the sun's rays to light the torch. And that is the custom of how Olympic flames are always lit. Really? I did not know that either, but it, cool. is, it is the custom. It's very cool. But unfortunately that year, because of cloudy skies, they couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. So she used a flame that was carried in a clay urn. And she lit the 2002 Olympic torch, which itself was uniquely created for the event. Because it was the Winter Olympics, they shaped it like an icicle. And then they had kind of a poetic interpretation to how it was made. The base was made of silver and the inner structure inside the base that kind of held the flame was made of copper. And this was to represent the silver and copper mines of the American West. Oh, and the flame at the top of the torch was surrounded by clear glass, which they said stood for purity, ice, winter, and nature. Okay. 
After she lit the flame, the flame itself was flown on an airplane to Atlanta, Georgia. And there in Atlanta, it began a nine-week relay of almost the entire United States. The torch was carried 13,500 miles by over 12,000 different torchbearers throughout most of the United States. It traveled by train, by different motor vehicles, by boat, by canoe, by bicycle. It was held by runners, and it was even held by skiers. It passed through 300 different communities, and it stopped twice every day, once for a midday celebration, and then at night it would stop in a larger populated city to rest for the night. And all the different communities got to nominate who from their area would be selected as a torchbearer. Atlanta, New York, and Salt Lake were selected as signature cities for the route, but because of 9-11, they added special uh, commemoration events in New York City and Washington, D.C. to the path. And the path itself is fascinating. I really do recommend that you look at the map if you get a second. But before then, I'm going to tell you it visited 46 of the states in the United States. Now, can you guess, Race, which four states were not visited by the Olympic flame? Well, my instinct, even though I know that um, Alaska did get visited, I would say Alaska and Hawaii because they're far away. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then if I had to pick in the United States, I would probably sadly say Arizona and or New Mexico because, um, I don't know, Idaho's pretty empty too, but New Mexico's very empty. Arizona's slightly less empty. Um, also the little tiny baby states like Rhode Island, it'd be very easy to skip over, you know, Vermont. Yeah. I don't know. Good guesses. Um, Alaska, crazily enough, the plot of this episode, Alaska was visited. Uh, Hawaii is correct. They didn't take it to Hawaii. And then they skipped three states that are all next to each other. And unfortunately it's a very unpopulated region of the U S uh, North Dakota and South Dakota in particular. And then Minnesota is right next door and they didn't go to Minnesota either. That makes sense. Um, if you are from those States listening to this, please don't be too upset because my hometown of Richmond also did not get visited. (laughs) I, I think I would have known this story if we did get visited. I think I would have like remembered that happening you know (laughs) surely there would have been like a class field trip well that's yeah well i I won't give anything away but that's the kind of thing that a school would do right is like we're gonna go see the torch yeah yeah you really should take a look at the map of the route some parts shocked me in particular there's one part where it does a loop around itself like it crosses itself over i'm not really sure why they did that but the other part that really surprised me is the utah route they took the torch from Moab in southeast Utah to St. George in southwest Utah. And you know what's in the middle of those. <laughs> There's nothing there. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure that's almost the Grand Canyon, right? Or like maybe you run over the top of the Grand Canyon. But there's very, nothing in there. Yeah, yeah you're very <laughs> close to a whole lot of nothing. I don't know if someone ran that part or if that was a train. There's not a lot of detail. It's it's there's clearly a Utah bias here because it was held in yes. Utah. Uh-huh. Otherwise, <laughs> I don't think they would have done that if it wasn't in Utah. But no. I was I was really <laughs> surprised to see that. <clears throat> 
So the Olympics have actually not been back to the United States since 2002. I didn't realize that until I was confronted with the text. Huh. Um, so this kind of thing has not happened again, but we might get to see it happen in 2028 because they're supposed to be hosted in Los Angeles that year. Mm. So who knows? Anyways, January 23rd, 2002, the torch is in Portland and the journey that day was to go from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington. Now the next day, it has a crazy route. I can't even believe this. The route on January 24th is Seattle to Alaska to Spokane. <laughs> <laughs> How exactly you do that in one day, Wikipedia does not elaborate. <laughs> I don't know if they took a plane or if they took a train. You definitely can't run that, <laughs> that distance, but I think even a train, that sounds way too far. So I don't know if they flew it or it said it went by boat at one point. Maybe they took a boat, but. That is interesting because, I mean, going to Alaska sounds really far, but Alaska, like Juneau is pretty far down there, but that's still okay. a, heck of a, that's a heck of a journey. But it, it's far, right? Yeah, I, I guess I don't know the driving time, but maybe somebody stuck the torch out the window and they drove. <laughs> <laughs> even still, that seems quite far. So that's how, anyways, on January 24th, 2002, a young student at Juneau High School named Joseph Frederick found himself on the sidewalk watching the Olympic torch go by and then right behind it, TV cameras. Now he and his friends, when they saw the cameras, looked into the camera and unfurled a banner with a shocking message on it, which Frederick Joseph said he had first seen on a snowboard sticker. The message was bong hits for Jesus. <laughs> they wrote it, I think in duct tape. That's kind of what it looks like. Yeah. Everything big, like white sheet of long sheet of white, like butcher paper. Bong yes. Uh-huh. Everything in the sentence is capitalized except for the letter I in hits, which has a dot. <laughs> And then the word four is printed as a number four. Yeah. So anybody who saw the title of this episode and was like, their grammar and capitalization is atrocious. <laughs> this is seen in context. <laughs> yes, exactly. Now, when the students throw this banner up in front of the camera, the principal, whose name is Deborah Morse, sees the banner, flings up her hands into the air and runs across the street and grabs and snatches the banner out of their hands. She suspends Joseph Frederick for five days. And then when she's giving him a talking to, he starts to quote Thomas Jefferson at her. So she says, I'm doubling it to 10 days. <laughs> <laughs> and he got suspended. As a counteract to this, Frederick Joseph, the student, sued the school. Uh, I don't know if he sued... How does the naming work here? Like, is Morse just uh, kind of a representative of the school? Or do you think he sued her particularly? Yeah, she's probably sued because she was the one acting in the name of okay. the school. I'm actually not totally clear on how the naming conventions work every time. I know there's rules. Um, and they're often referred to just like the most convenient in the most convenient way. Because a lot of these cases... Say? Yeah. Like, yeah. And like this case is interesting because these are just like the two actual people involved. Like yeah. Morse was holding a sign or Frederick was holding a sign and Morse took it from him. 
But in other cases where it's like, you know, oh, we're suing the National Center for Scientific Research. And it's like, oh, boy, these names get really long. And so, (laughs) you know, and so they get abbreviated and stuff. But, yeah, I'm guessing he sued her as as like the head of the school and the person who literally, you know, shut him down. Yes. uh Makes sense. So he sued and he claimed that his right to free speech was violated. Now, the district court that oversaw the case disagreed with Joseph Frederick. And they followed some cases which have established an idea of school speech or the idea that school has the ability or right to police the speech of its students. And we talked about this earlier. You know, bong hits for Jesus is kind of a silly thing to quibble over. But you talked about what we've seen are more serious examples, such as in the case of Tinker versus Des Moines, when the students were wearing the black armbands to protest the Vietnam War. That has a little bit more gravity, I think, at least maybe it does to current audiences. For sure. And I mean, and the concept of school speech makes sense, because, again, you could you couldn't really properly hold a school if you couldn't tell students you have to stop talking right now. (laughs) Yeah. You know, because. Otherwise, a student could just say, well, I feel like going on a rant about, you know, why (laughs) the New York Giants are the worst team of all time. And it's like, you can't do that right now. You have to stop talking. (laughs) So so there there are kind of special rules for schools because they do sort of have they need to have the right to, to stop some speech. But, you know, like, well, and like we said, the tinker test is how substantially what is this interfering with the school's job of teaching yes okay. you know a, a t-shirt that says something that maybe not everybody likes does that bring the class to a halt probably not but maybe whereas somebody with a bullhorn walking up and down the halls it that might bring a class to a halt so yeah yes it's very interesting and you know i couldn't help but think about my time as a teacher which was for a very short year a couple years ago um and i was kind of confronted with this reality, which I hadn't expected going in to teach. But it's like, I kind of have to, I kind of get where the principal is coming here, coming from here. Because when I was a teacher, if somebody had written bong hits for Jesus on the board, I would have been like, whatever, who cares? Yeah. (laughs) But there's just kind of a, there's just kind of like a fragile sense of like, stability in school that can easily get tipped off by students doing goofy things Hmm. and unfortunately you kind of do have to like bring the hammer down and be like you need to erase this i'm like (laughs) that seems really grinchy and grumpy to me but unfortunately it was kind of the reality at least in the school that i was teaching in yeah it it does make some sense why you might need to i was gonna specifically ask that question because i taught a little bit too i didn't teach young students like you did quite as young yeah we've both been in a classroom and it's our job to like we have to get through this material and we've only got, you know, an hour or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. What, what would you do if your students had a sign that said bong hits for Jesus? And I think most teachers would say, I'm going to make them, I'm going to take it. I'm going to make them put it away. Like there's. Yeah. I I think the age makes a big difference. I was teaching Mm -hmm. sixth graders and sixth graders have like, if something weird happens at all, they'll just like burst into laughter. And then it's like, we just wasted 30 minutes like yeah. trying to get everybody under control. But if it was high schoolers, I'm like, y'all are a little bit more in control. I think I would expect some more, 
you know, self-reliance in that case. But it, it definitely threw me for a loop. I think I ended the school year being much grinchier, much more <laughs> like the principal than I ever wanted to be. And I wanted to tell my students, like, I really don't care, but like, it just doesn't really work. <laughs> Otherwise, we're not going to get anything done, you know? Totally. Yeah. Like you said, it is kind of a fragile ecosystem. There's There's got to be like enough respect that you let me keep, like the teacher has to be respected enough and has to be able to tell people to stop so that class yeah, can continue uh -huh. and so yeah weird it's a weird dynamic it makes sense that we've thought about this as its own category yes definitely um that being said i do think this principle is a grinch but we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> so the district court ruled against joseph frederick but it was overturned in the circuit court because he appealed and the circuit court gave a nice ruling that I'll just read here. They said, the question comes down to whether a school may, in the absence of concern about disruption of educational activities, punish and censor non-disruptive off-campus speech by students during school authorized activities because the speech promotes a social message contrary to the one favored by the school. The answer under controlling long existent precedent is plainly no. That gives me some hope to hear that as a statement. Uh, and Joseph Frederick was thrilled when he heard that too. It seemed like all was well and he was going to win this. But then the case was reviewed again by the Supreme Court and they disagreed. So, like you said, ominously, Tyler, it gets to the Supreme Court and they disagree. This was a 5-4 ruling. So this is a very close call. Um, just one justice switching sides would have reversed this, um, as opposed to, you know, what we saw in Tinker, which was a 7-2, I think. Um, but what they found was that, no, 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 all of you lower courts who've said otherwise, school officials actually did not violate um, this student's First Amendment right. And um, Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, um, authored the opinion, and he said he made, he made three legal determinations. First, um, he said, this is a school speech case, um, which wasn't a given because something that I don't know if we've mentioned up till now, this took place at a school event but it did not take place on school property mm. and it wasn't as uh, I, I might have to check on this, but I'm not even sure if, if it was during school hours. It may have might have been like a field trip, um, but it was a school event, but it wasn't in school. It wasn't on school property. It wasn't. And so um, there was some question about, is this even school speech or is this just a, a, an American kid saying what he wants to say out in the free world? But he said, no, it is school speech. Um, second, he said this, the speech that was, that, um, that this student, you know, participated in could be reasonably viewed as promoting illegal drug use. So that's a determination. Um, and any of these determinations we can and, and might disagree with. The third determination he made was that a principal may legally res restrict speech, um, notwithstanding the precedent that we've, you know, discussed already. So there is a play, there is a time, there is a, an area of the law where a principal could restrict such speech, 
um, because important, um, indeed perhaps compelling interest in deterring drug use by students kind of trumps, you know, what we said in Tinker, which is students have a right to speak their mind as long as it's not overly disruptive. So that's kind of the three points that Judge Roberts makes in saying, Justice Roberts makes in saying, um, the school was totally within their rights to do this. Um, I've, and so now, now we get to the part I'm excited about where we can kind of just discuss, but I have problems with, I think all three of his points. Um, so I, if I had been on the court, I think that I would have said, um, I would have dissented and I would have said, no, this feels like not the time for the school to prohibit. Yeah. How do you feel about it generally? Well, it's definitely not school hours. Is that one of the points that's in question? It's like, yeah, this is after hours. They were dismissed early is what I'm reading. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were not on school property. Yeah. I don't know if I buy that particular. Yeah. So school is school is out for the day and we've left the school grounds and they're saying this was a school event, which you know, makes sense. There's a basketball game isn't held, for instance, during school hours, but it's still a school event. But this wasn't even on school property. So I don't like that. Yeah. And then reasonably viewed as promoting illegal legal drug use, that kind of seems like a stretch to me. That also may be the 2023 in me, which yep. is like, this is now legal a lot of places. Yeah. <laughs> so I, like I, attitudes, I think, have changed. I don't know. I, for sure. I was going to bring that up. I don't think you can have a conversation about this topic in without, context. Yeah. Yeah. Without referencing the fact that the public's views and the laws in most, many, many states on marijuana have totally changed. Yes. Okay. Um, and and also on that point, note, reason, yeah. On, on that note, reasonably viewed as promoting illegal drug use. What does bong hits for Jesus even mean? What is that saying? Yeah. Like, a... <laughs> is it saying we're all going to take hits off a of bong like in the, like in honor of Jesus? <laughs> is it saying I would like Jesus to take, to partake in my, in my marijuana? Is it saying like, it's not clear really. It's, it's, it's almost nonsensical, right? You know, it actually, now that we're saying it, to me, it feels like separation of church and state. And I don't know if he should have said Jesus at a school event. (laughs) Or he could, or he could argue and say, I was, this is a core tenant of my beliefs is bong hits for Jesus and you are discriminating. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think we can definitely say that like, this is at, at best, like drug adjacent yeah, like drug gibberish. Yeah, it's and yeah. And, at, and at worst, it's or like you know, at the other end of the spectrum, it's this is just a, it's just nothing. It's just yeah, two, two funny words, you know, two words that sound funny together. So let's let's go for it. Let's put it up. I wonder if it would have been different. Like, what if he had just put up uh, an image of a marijuana leaf, which is also a common snowboard sticker? You know, yeah, would that have been? I don't know. So it's hard, it's hard to imagine like what the principal would do 20 so, years ago. 
so this is exactly what where I want this conversation to go because mm-hmm. this is what law school discussion is like. The teacher will say, "Well, what if it what if it was just a marijuana leaf, or what if it said, um, uh-huh. I can sell you marijuana. Here's my cell phone number." Like, and you can start to see, okay, if it went that direction, then yes. But if it went this yeah. direction, then no. If it goes that direction, eh, I don't know about that. And so yeah. I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up. I also <laughs> happen to have um, a quote from this guy that I found on the ACLU website, and he said, "Bong hits for Jesus was never meant to have any substantive meaning." It was certainly not intended as a drug or a religious message. I conveyed <laughs> this to the principal by explaining it was intended to be funny, subjectively interpreted by the reader, and most importantly, an exercise of my inalienable right to free speech. Wow. What, what it sounds like to me, which is clearly what it was, is there's going to be cameras. And if we hold up a goofy sign, we're probably going to get a beyond we'll TV, for, TV right? for half a second. Right? <laughs> and that also, to me, feels like we're the ire is coming from from the principal it doesn't feel like oh he's disrupting school it feels like they put that on tv and now people are going to be judging us you know like it seems concerned more with reputation yeah which you have to balance that can we tell a student to stop talking because it hurts our reputation right yeah you know how do we how do we feel about that yeah well, I, yeah, so I also disagree with that third point that we were saying is that, you know, a school has an important and perhaps compelling interest in deterring drug use. And I just don't imagine a ton of people running out, you know, that this was like going to be causing problems or be disruptive to the learning environment at the school. Yeah. That a kid, a kid used the word bong after school hours off school campus, right? <laughs> yeah, I yeah. agree. I, I don't really follow that thread from the ruling yeah well so we're, we're kind of of one mind on that um and if you're all right with it i've got some other i have some hypotheticals like law school exam questions that we can throw around and we'll see tyler if you uh, oh wow if, what your chops are like <laughs> i'm um, scared okay uh tyler it's your first day as a student at ucla and you get a notice from your dorm from your ra uh, hey, you have to take down that pride flag that you have hanging in your window because it violates school policy. Can they do that? In 2023? <laughs> yeah. Uh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. That's your answer. I think that I agree with very you. clear. Yeah. Why not? Um, symbolic speech. Okay, sure. So you are speaking. That's not in question. It's my freedom to express. It's my space. I, I recognize they may make an argument that it's their space, but I think I would fight that. It's my dorm room. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and it's not like hate speech. It's not promoting any kind of hate or anything. Um. It just kind of, this just kind of feels like a given. I'm trying to think of another like um, counter argument that they would try well, to make. Well, I think to, to what you were kind of saying about it being your space, for instance, you are, there's not a lot of argument to be made that you're disrupting class or the educational aims of the school, right? Yeah. Like this is something that somebody could see if they're walking by, but you're not 
disrupting class. Well, it's not disrupting anything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's not uh, infringing on anybody else or anything. Yeah. So I think, I think I'm, I'm with you on that one. Okay. Um, now, what about this? What if it was um, USC, the University of Southern California? Why would that be? Why would, why am I asking you about that school now? Um, are they both state schools? I don't really know. Oh, but you, that's, that's correct. Does that matter? Yes, it does. So it USC, does? yeah, USC is a private school. Oh, USC is private and UCLA is public. Yeah. yeah so okay. we would, that, you know, that, that would matter. Now, what about this? You, you were saying earlier, it's not, um, it's not hate speech. So what if it was, um, and this is a, these are, there've been cases on this. What if it was a Confederate battle flag? Yeah. Um, I don't know that that's necessarily hate speech either, although that kind of changes minute to minute in this current decade, don't you think? Um, yeah. But I guess I would say the same thing, like, you know, freedom to express, freedom to put up a flag that you want to put up and it's in your spot and it's not disrupting anybody. Yep. I guess that's what I would go with. Are you going to make me do a Nazi flag next? <laughs> this is hard. <laughs> so that is that is exactly what we would do in law school. Say, well, what, about, oh, no. what about this? And yeah. you, you've got the right, um, I think you've got the right impulses, right? Which is like, well, I like, you know, if X flag, this flag over here is a flag that I like, but I don't like that flag. But like, yeah. do I have to let them hang it up? And it's like, yeah, I guess I probably do. Oh, that's <laughs> um, yeah, which okay. is which is hard. Right. But like um, like you said, this isn't um, you said, well, a pride flag isn't hate speech. And, you know, that's something that you are interpreting and anybody else hanging up any flag that they want has the right to say, well, this isn't hate speech either. And then we get to argue about whether it is or it isn't. Whether it is or it isn't hate speech. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and interestingly, um, you'll notice that hate speech that I listed is not really listed as one of the enumerated exceptions. Oh, yeah, that's right. If it's, and, and like you said, politically in this like climate, there's a lot of things that maybe wouldn't want to be done just to not ruffle feathers there's, There's also now that are like dog whistles too, right? Sure. Like, and that that changes minute to minute. And I just don't think that the pride flag is dog whistling anything like that, you know? Yeah, <laughs> but I, I just love these because these are tricky. They're so yeah, that, this is great. Okay, okay. Next, uh, next law school question. So it's your first day of work at um, for the corporation Twitter, okay. and you are Ooh. told godspeed that, yeah <laughs> you are told as a as a condition of your employment there is to be no criticism public or even in private even alone in your home with your with your family or your partner you can't criticize ceo elon musk or you will be fired can they do that <laughs> um I would say they. I have the, I yeah. have the biggest smile on my face. Yeah, right this now. is really fun. I, you're right. I would have enjoyed law school. <laughs> um, I would say they can do that. I would say they shouldn't do that. I think that's mm -hmm. a very bad business idea. 
but I don't think that I would ask uh, the court to prohibit them from doing that. Why not? Because you sign on to work at that corporation. We currently live in a country where you don't have to work for Twitter if you don't want to. For a few more years, at least. we do. For a few more years. I think that would have been very different in the 1890s. Mm-hmm. We had to fight pretty hard for labor laws. But you don't have to work for Twitter if you don't want to anymore. Um, and if they want to, you know, say what people want to say, I guess it's, it's just not a constitutionally given right. I don't know. Oh, this is this is tough. <laughs> no, you're you're right. Yeah. And, um, I think the heart of that one is this isn't a First Amendment issue because it's this not a First Amendment issue. Yeah, it's not government action. Mm-hmm. And so, like you said, and you you we we would get into these tortured arguments in law school, where the professor would be like, "I know that you don't agree with this. I'm not yes. saying should they do it? like you just said. I don't think they should." And it's like we don't care if they should. That's a different yes. question and an important yes. question, <laughs> but can they and the answer here is yeah sure twitter can say that and very well might be saying that right now i don't know um but the part that the part that freaks me out i guess like from a labor standpoint is if that was to become the norm in all businesses yep so that then the employee has no way to escape it i think that would be a problem but the fact that the employee can currently escape environments like that maybe i'm overgeneralizing uh, to me, I, you know, just walk away from Elon Musk, go work somewhere else. Sure. Well, let's say you do that. Let's say you go to a job at the department of justice and you're told you can't criticize the attorney general Merrick Garland. Oh, Uh, okay. Can they do that? Uh, no, they can't do that. That's a government position. It's kind of like a job, I guess. It's kind of different from like the government telling a citizen what they can do. Um, but you're you're exactly right. It's still it's now we have government action. Now we have government involvement. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Here's my last one, and this one's this one's kind of tricky. And this I got this, and I hadn't thought of this, but this one came from a test. Okay. Oh. Okay. So you are a reporter, and you're investigating a murder that the police have arrested a suspect, and it goes to trial in a few weeks. And Tyler, you are a diligent investigator and a and a, a, a dogged interviewer, and you have found lots of evidence that shows that tends to show that this suspect looks very guilty. You even have sworn evidence from a police officer that um, a police officer who saw the suspect confess to the murder. So you got the inside scoop officer saying he totally confessed that he did this. Then suddenly the judge who will preside over the trial calls you and all the other reporters in the community into chambers and says, we are worried about the ability of the suspect to get a fair jury trial if the public hears all of this bad stuff. Yeah, okay. I hereby enjoin you from publishing the dirt you have on him, specifically publishing the fact that he has confessed to this crime until after a jury has been selected. And the trial has been completed. And I feel that this measure is necessary to guarantee a fair trial to the accused. Wow. Can the judge, and we can, we can say that's clearly government action. Is that an 
a lawful or an unlawful restriction of speech. Am I, I'm the detective, right? Yes. Did I ask the judge to do that or the judge just came up with that idea? Or sorry, you're a reporter, not a detective. I'm a reporter, excuse me. Oh, and so the the reporter is telling me, do not publish this. Yeah, the judge is saying, I know you guys have this story. You got the juicy inside scoop that he confessed, but you cannot publish that until after the trial is over so that we ensure that people can be chosen for a jury. He can get a fair jury selection. This is a very spicy one. (laughs) Honestly, off the cuff, I have no idea. But I'll tell you my gut instinct, which is that the judge should not be able to enjoin me from freedom of the press. But in the system as it is, I think there's kind of a special relationship between the press and the courts, uh, kind of working hand in hand to ensure that justice is carried out, right? Like, uh, you want to maintain that. I think just in practice, it's it's like in the interest of both the newspaper and the judge to work together typically. Okay, I like I like all of this. Mm-hmm. So we know it's definitely government action because it's coming from a judge. Right, okay. Um, and um, I think we could s- say that like, this is a pretty important concern. Like you were saying, like yes. the interest of justice this is more than just like, oh, we don't want our school to look bad. It's mm-hmm. like, it's possible that this person won't be able to get a fair trial in this county if you publish this before this goes to trial. And you want your paper to have respectability, right? And credibility. And right. I know these are things that uh, important newspapers take into consideration. Yeah. Yeah. When do we break a story? Yeah. In what manner? Because we want. It's not just like, let's throw this article out and get the clicks. Like you can't do that as a well-regarded media outlet. Sure. There's a, well, so I'll, I'll, I'll pull the the curtain back. So this is a real case. Oh, okay. Um, And the court eventually said, the judge cannot um, stop reporters from reporting this. Wow. And one of the big reasons is, I mean, the first hurdle you'd have to get over at any point, if you're the attorney arguing for the government in this case, is the judge is going to look at you and say, you know that you're stopping free speech, right? Justify yourself. Like in America, you've got to, you've got to come with some facts. If you're telling somebody they can't print that in a newspaper like on what grounds you know so that's the first big hurdle and that's basically what the court said was like this is freedom of the press and that's a big deal and while getting a fair trial is also a big deal one of the things they pointed out was the thing you're trying to protect which is let's make sure this guy gets a fair trial just by not publishing this stuff you're not it's not even clear that this injunction would would accomplish what it seeks to right because even if even if they did publish that, well, we'll go until we find jurors who haven't read the case. Yeah. We'll go until we find jurors who don't have an opinion. It's we'll, not like the case has to get thrown out. Yeah. And like yeah. there are there are times when a case gets moved to another county or another state because it's so, you know, there's such high profile that everybody has an opinion and this is a concern. We don't know but if they will happen. work to to try and find a yeah. okay. So even yeah, so even if we let you do that, Judge, it's not clear that it would have the effect that you want it to have. Yeah, okay. Um and anyway, I, I love that one. That one's a, that's that's a really one. good. Yeah. <laughs> um but I just love the the fact that it's 
so it's a balancing test. And it's funny that we had this kind of kitchen metaphor, but I really like it because it's, <laughs> it applies so well. Like, like we were saying, is a toaster worth it? Yeah. <laughs> and you have to say, well, it brings, it brings some things to the table. Like I can, to- I can walk away. It toasts or whatever. It's got its benefits, but I also have to weigh it against what it's, it gives me things and it takes things away. And you have to decide where the line is. How much can it take away from me before it's not worth it? And in the United States, as it applies to the freedom of speech, we have put that line pretty far over and said, it has to be pretty darn compelling before we start allowing people, before you know it yes. outweighs uh-huh. the negatives. Although I will say that this case, um, this um, Morris case, Morris v. Frederick, is one of the less popular ones for the reasons that we've discussed, because this does feel a little bit like um, maybe in a, a little bit of an abandonment of the sacrosanct right of the freedom Sense? of speech. Yeah. Uh-huh. We, we may, we may have taken a bit of a, this might be a bit of a misstep if you, you know, feel that way that the right of, of the speech really is, is that important. It feels like censorship to me. And I think censorship mm is very unpopular in American thought, right? Or maybe I'm wrong, but sure. no, I the idea of like anyone. someone is just burning books or taking a, a black marker to the text, like don't do that, you know, that's not appropriate. Yeah, and especially like you said, in this situation, it seems like this is more just, I'm mad that this kid is goofing off or embarrassing me. Yes. Uh-huh. As opposed, and it seems like maybe after the fact, they said, well, the message is a problem when i just i just don't buy that i think that the message it would have to be a lot bigger problem for me to feel comfortable saying we have to tell this the government now has to tell that student he has to stop i think a lot of these examples too uh they overreacted the principal running over there with her hands in the air that's one thing but suspending the student for 10 days like why don't you just rip up rip up the banner like (laughs) there are different ways of like getting your message across well and 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 talk about the streisand effect we're now discussing this principle we're discussing this banner and the banner was hanging in a museum in washington dc for years as like an emblem of free speech so she has this principle inadvertently you know put the her school and the quote unquote we want to stop this speech from getting out and she made it you know the subject of everybody's favorite podcast race and tyler talk wikipedia exactly it brought more attention to the cause of smoking marijuana with jesus <laughs> than she she ever wanted to um I love it. I love uh, this metaphor. And I'm here to look the camera in the eye and unroll the banner and tell you a toaster does not bring you any benefit. (laughs) Today's first footnote is about the fate of the banner that Joseph Frederick created. It survived being confiscated by the principal and actually ended up in something called the museum, a DC museum dedicated to First Amendment and journalistic history. It hung in that building for years and was there when I visited in 2014. It remained there until the end of 2019 when the museum sadly closed its doors for good. Second, Tyler and I discussed the old example of shouting fire in a crowded theater. 
While this might sound like a quaint hypothetical, it was a real phenomenon that was quite dangerous. In the early 20th century, before building safety features such as fire escapes, emergency exits, and occupancy requirements were in existence or widely enforced, there were several examples of deadly panics in crowded public spaces. For instance, at what has been come to be known as the Shiloh Baptist Church Stampede of 1902, over a hundred people died when someone shouted, there's a fight, and it was misheard as, there's a fire. In the frenzy to escape, scores of men, women, and children had the breath crushed out of them or fell to their deaths. Another tragic event occurred on Christmas Eve 1913 in Calumet, Michigan, when someone falsely shouted fire at Calumet's Italian Hall, where a crowded Christmas party was being held by striking union workers for a local mining company. The resulting frenzy killed 73 people. Interestingly, it is rumored that mine management may have sent a spy to the party who would shout fire, which adds a sinister and murderous layer to what Wikipedia calls the Italian Hall Disaster. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and we'll talk at you next time.